Well, if you guys got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them or turn them on, whatever your preference may be. Uh, we'll be in John 1, 1, again, continuing um, our series here in the book of John. Um, so if you grab one of the Bibles uh, on the seats there, it's on page 758. Um, John 1, and we'll actually be in verses 6 through 8 today. John 1, verses 6 through 8. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, and the verse ones are the smaller ones there. So chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Uh, and if you weren't here with us the first week, we kind of set out this uh, sermon series that we're going to be going on, uh, this over a year-long journey through the book of John. Uh, so we're going verse by verse through the book of John, finishing sometime around next Easter. Uh, and so we started at the end, actually, uh, in John 21, where John lays out his purpose for writing the book. Uh, and he says that the, his entire reason for writing the book was that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing through him, you may have life. Well, then we jumped into verse one here of chapter one, and we saw last week in verses one through five that John is teaching us about who this Jesus is. Uh, here he calls him the word, uh, and we see that, that what that means, that, that he says that, that Jesus was creative, that he was there through creation and revelation and salvation, just like God's word was throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and he's teaching us more about who Jesus is, this word, that he is eternal. He was there in the beginning that he's relational, that he was, he was there with God, that there is this Trinity relationship there amongst the Word and the Father and the Spirit, uh, and that the Word was God, that Jesus is in fact God. He is divine. Uh, there never was a moment when he was not, and there was never a moment when he was not God. And we see that he brings with him everything, that everything was made through him and for him, all of creation, and that he is the life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, that then leads us then to verses six through eight here, as we see John now writing about another man named John. So don't be confused, these are different Johns here. We have John the Evangelist who wrote this book, and we have John the Baptist, whom we're gonna read about today. So in John one, verses six through eight, we read, that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, starting off this morning, before we jump into the text itself, I want to kind of step back with, with all that's been going on in um, politics the past couple weeks, the past couple months. Uh, I want to go back to a day in politics actually about 50 years ago, 57 years ago to be exact, in 1960. Uh, another presidential candidate named John F. Kennedy uh, was, was getting some flack as he was running for president. You see, he would have been the first Catholic uh, that would be ever elected president. And there were a lot of people who were coming against him. So he came down to Houston, Texas, uh, and he was going to address this fact head on directly to a group of Protestant ministers on the issue of his religion. Now, at the time, many Protestants were questioning whether Kennedy would be able to govern freely apart from the Catholic Church, or would he kind of be held underneath the Catholic Church? Would they be telling him what to do? And this was the question surrounding the debate. Um, and so Kennedy wanted to address that head on, whether his faith would allow him to make important national decisions as a president independent of the church. Well, he goes into this speech then as he directly tries to head this on, and he gets to one phrase in particular that I want to read. As he's addressing these Protestant ministers, he gets towards the end of the speech and he makes this statement. He says, quote, I believe in a president whose religious views are his own private affair." Now, what Kennedy was saying in the context of that speech was, was the importance of religious freedom, which is, I think is one of the great hallmarks of America. 
whether true or false religions, you have the freedom to be able to worship as long as it doesn't harm others. But what he says here is he says, I believe in a president whose religious views are his own private affair. And now what people heard and then began to espouse from then on is people began to claim, particularly here in America, that, you know what, that is right. My faith, it is private. Other people don't need to know about that. I don't need to go and tell people about what I believe. Some people may find it offensive. I need to to keep this to myself. And that's what people began to grow from this speech in 1960 as they began to say, you know what, he's right. My faith is my own private affair. Well, friends, I wanna look at that today, particularly in light of these verses. Is that true? Is the Christian faith, in fact, a private affair? Is it something that we should keep to ourselves and not have to share with others? What did John think of that? So that's gonna be the question that we dive in and look at here, trying to answer, is Christianity, in fact, our own private affair? So as we start, I wanna look at four different things in these three verses, four different things. Um, First, in verse six, we see that this John the Baptist was sent from God. So first, we see he was sent from God. Secondly, we see that he came as a witness at the beginning of verse seven and the end of verse eight, that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Third, we see that he came as a witness so that all might believe through him, the second half of verse seven. And then fourth, we see that he was not the light. He was not the light. So those are our four points today. If you're a note taker at all, I am not. But if you are, there they are. Uh, Sent from God, point one. He came as a witness, point two, that all might believe through him, point three. And then lastly, um, he was not the light. Um, So first, John was sent from God. Verse six, John the gospel writer writes here that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now this phrase is, is, is particular to John because John is kind of functioning here as kind of the final of the Old Testament prophets whom this kind of language is used as well in the Old Testament for these prophets that are sent from God to proclaim a message from God. And John is, in this language is the same kind of way. John was sent for a particular purpose to go and proclaim this message that he received from God to proclaim this message. Now, so that's unique to him. None of us are prophets who have come here as apostles sent from God to bear witness about him. But in another way, each of us actually are sent from God. Because you see, in God in his divine will has a specific purpose for every single thing that he does and every single thing that he does for your life. Friends, there is nothing that happens as an accident in the will of God. Nothing that where you are is exactly where he wants you to be. Right, And so uh, I want to look and see, so if we're sent from God, what has he sent us to do? How has he sent us? What has he said to us? And so I think of, uh, of a story, I don't know if you guys have any brothers or sisters. I had a sister, uh, have a sister whom I love dearly. Um, but when we were younger, I feel like brothers and sisters were made for our sanctification, that they were put in our lives to show us the darkness in our own hearts and show us I did not realize that I could feel this angry towards someone as they came and told me everything that I needed to do, particularly if you were like me and a youngest child. Right? My, my older sister would come often and tell me things that I needed to do. And it, 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 the, the feeling that I felt in those moments is a feeling that I felt a few other times in my life as she would come in as though she was the boss and say, Caleb, you need to clean your room. You need to do this. You need to go play with my Barbies. You need to do these things. I'm like, no, Courtney, I will not. You are not the authority over me. But then she would come and she would say something that would add a little bit more authority when she would come. 
She'd walk in and she'd say, Caleb, you need to clean your room. And I would say, no, I don't. And she would say, Caleb, mom told me to tell you that you need to clean your room. Things changed then. And all of a sudden, her message was the same, but the authority had changed because of whom she had received it from. Well, friends, it's the same thing that we see from our message, what we have been sent to do. Uh, As Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, the Great Commission, Jesus came to his disciples and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you hear what he's saying. He's saying every bit of authority in heaven and on earth, all the authority that you can muster up has now been given to me. So probably we need to listen to what he's about to say. If he's saying everything, the Father, creation, everything, all the authority in the world has been given to me to tell you this. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, if you are a Christian, no matter where you are in your walk, no matter where you are in your life, you have been sent by God to accomplish this purpose. This is your commission. No matter where you are, whether you are a stay-at-home mom or somebody who works 50, 70 hours a week, somebody who travels the world, somebody who is, in fact, praying to become a missionary, to go to all the world, no matter where you are, you have been called to this commission to make disciples, If you feel like, well, how could that be me? Like I'm at home with my kids all day. Like how can I accomplish this? Well, friend, this is exactly it. Look at your children and make disciples of them. Pour into them to raise them up and send them out. That is your commission. As you go to the grocery store and you begin to make relationships with people around town, if you're a CrossFitter, which I am not, but if you are, then make make this true in your reality within your box, within your gym. If you go and you do any other hobby that you may find to do, shooting guns or eating good food, whatever it may be, um, this is true for you. Make disciples of all nations. So we go, we go to make disciples. You hear the word there. He's not saying, wait, sit around. Jesus is saying, go, go. And so friends, that's what we are doing here. I wanna be really clear what's happening here. This is not the point of what we do each week as Christians. This is more of gathering together so we can kind of be filled back up with the word of God, have our affections stirred for the gospel, and then going back out into the real world where the battle is. So we, the purpose of this is to gather together so that we can scatter and accomplish this purpose, to go and make disciples of all nations. And I love that Jesus says the word disciples here. And I want to make a point here that, that he doesn't say the word converts. He doesn't say go and make converts. Don't go and make decisions for me. He says go and make disciples. And friends, the difference between those two things is drastic. I don't know if, if you're at all like me. I grew up in a church in Western Louisiana, home of Duck Dynasty, USA, Grew up in a church, I, I mean, it's as far back as I can remember, I was in a pew on Sunday mornings. And I remember looking around me and all of my friendships, all of my relationships through middle school, high school, into college. And I would hear these people say, I'm a Christian. I'm absolutely a Christian. When I was six years old, I walked down an aisle, made a decision. And then the rest of the week, I would see them at parties. I would hear them bragging about the people that they had uh, slept with. And I'm going, this doesn't seem to make sense to me. 
But then as I began to hear what the New Testament was teaching, begin to see Jesus' call here is Jesus is saying, I don't just want you to go and make decisions for me. I want you to go and make disciples. People who say, yes, I will turn and follow you, who come with their hands open to say, there is nothing in my life that is not hidden from your lordship. But Jesus, you have full authority over every aspect of my life to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. And this is something that, this is why we do what we do, what we'll start in a month or so, doing Theology Night. As we see this aspect that we need to teach each other who God is. We see this in the very commission itself. And friends, this is, uh, for me, again, growing up, often people were kind of averse to theology and doctrines and word like that. Because it's like, oh, we can't, we can't dive into that because then we'll just be heady. Then we'll just be academic and our faith will not be full. Our, our hearts will not be stirred. And we'll just argue and be puffed up with pride. And friends, I guarantee you probably know people like that. I do. But the problem is not theology and doctrine. The problem is with their hearts. This is no different from any relationship that you have. Every relationship that you have, the way to grow in your love for them is to get to know them more. Whether it be friendships, your wife, your husband, your kids, You don't just go, hey, I've met you once before and now we're just going to love each other. It's gonna be great. But no, to be a good husband, you need to constantly be pursuing your wife, getting to know her more, the ins and outs of what makes her tick, what makes her thrive. How can you step in and serve her and help her flourish to get to study her and know her more so that you can love her more? That the two things work together, that as you know her more, you begin to love her more. And as you love her more, you begin to want to know her more. And friends, we see the same thing here with God, that as we study him more, as we begin to understand who he is, as we begin to understand his character and how he saved us and his role in our Christian life, that that begins to stir our hearts to love him more. And as we love him more, we then want to know him more. And so we have been sent from God to accomplish this purpose, the Great Commission. And you can have the confidence that no matter where you are, God has sent you there. Friends, it is not an accident. There is nothing in this life that is minuscule or is not sacred or falls apart from the divine will of God. You have a distinct purpose to fulfill the Great Commission in whatever situation you find yourself in. We have all, like John, been sent from God. Secondly, we also see that John came as a witness in verse 7, 7a and verse 8b. It says that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And again, at the end of verse 8, that he came to bear witness about the light. So we see here that John came as a witness. Now this is, this is a theme, a motif that, that John is going to come back to over and over again throughout this book. And we'll see it as we travel through uh, this entire book. John is kind of making an argument here uh, about who Christ is, right? We saw it in his purpose statement. He said he's going to try to convince people that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And to do that, John is going to kind of place Jesus on trial. He's going to put him on trial and call different witnesses to the stand to bear witness about who this Christ is. 
And we begin here with John the Baptist. John came to bear witness. And we see throughout that the Father, Jesus' miracles, the scriptures themselves are all bearing witness as they are called to the stand saying that this one right here, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And this was his purpose, to come and bear witness. Now, what is a witness? Right? I'm pretty sure all of us have seen some iteration of law and order by this time. One of the 27 different seasons that they have. And, and I want us to try to think through when a witness is called to the stand, what is their purpose? A witness's purpose is to say, I saw what happened and I will testify about the truth of it. To convince people about who this man is and what he did. And so as you read through the book of John and we get to every time we get to John talking about a witness, you can just imagine the law and order theme playing in your mind. So I wish that was a moment where we could queue up and have the law and order theme drop right there. But alas, you can just imagine what it would sound like. So this is what John is doing, saying that this is who John the Baptist was. He was a witness. He came to speak about who this Christ was, about who this Jesus was. He was not quiet. In fact, wrapped up in the very idea of what a witness is, you have to speak. There's never been a witness who who was called to the stand who did not communicate in some way. He didn't just go up there and begin to, so just try to imagine a courtroom in which a lawyer calls a witness to the stand. And the witness gets up there and he begins to just do good deeds and live a good life. And then he just gets off the stand and sits down. I'm sure the jury would be thinking, what in the world did he try to accomplish there? I didn't understand anything that just happened. He didn't say anything. Friends, it's the same thing whenever we try to bear witness about Christ without saying anything. So there's an expression out there that's become popular. uh, Preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. And it's, it's wrapped up in the phrase trying to say we should live our lives in such a way that we are preaching the gospel with our lives so we don't even have to use words. Well, it's true that, we, that our words and our works, our lives should match. But friends, bearing witness and sharing the gospel in its very essence cannot be done apart from words. It's like trying to go up on the stand and try to testify without saying anything. We cannot do that. We have to speak. The very word gospel means good news. And news is never just acted out. News is always communicated. So wrapped up in the very essence of the word itself is saying we have to speak. We have to go and say something. To be a witness, we cannot just keep it to ourselves. So in fact, we see that Christianity is not just our own private affair, but that we have to be driven in our lives as we go to make disciples. We have to speak. That yes, we want our lives to match up to them, to what we are saying. We don't want to live hypocritically. We want to love people. We want to serve those who are unreached. But in the midst of all of it, along with it, we want to share and speak and witness about who this Christ is. Third, we see why he came, why he was sent, and why he came as a witness. He came that all might believe through him, that all might believe through him. We see that at the end of verse 7 that all might believe through him. So John is writing here and the evangelist and he's saying the purpose of John the Baptist is the exact same purpose of John the gospel writer. That he came so that everyone that he came in contact with would believe in this Christ through him, through his words, through his actions. 
And this word believe that is used here in the Greek, it's an interesting word. So within itself, this word in itself is only used uh, in the New Testament. Uh, John uses about a third of its uses in this book itself. A third of the times that this word is used is found within the book of John. Another third are found in are, are found in John's uh, later epistles, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. So John is consumed with this idea of what it means to believe, that almost 67% of the times this word is used is used by this author. And this word, it's not just kind of a, an acknowledging of faith, this intellectual assent saying, yes, I believe in that. Like I would say that I believe Mississippi State is the best football team in the country. Not quite like that. Uh, because that's, yeah, that's, that's not at all true, but that's fine. I still love Mississippi State. Um, so it's not just a, an intellectual assent, but it is a different kind of belief. It is an active belief that John is talking about here, one that is relational, one that is always continuing. Andreas Kostenberger, who is a um, New Testament scholar who wrote a commentary on John, I feel like you need a degree just to say his name, um, <laughs> He said this about this word believe. He said that John is not concerned with understanding belief as the affirmation of certain religious truths. He is much more concerned about active relational trust in Jesus Christ. And so see, now we're starting to get underneath what these words mean. These words belief and faith, they often can sometimes lose their sense because we use them so much and they just become church words that we just throw out. But what they mean is an active and relational trust in this God. That we see who he is. We begin to form a relationship with him and trust him with our lives. Even in moments and things where we go, what, you're calling me to do what? So I'm reading this Bible and you're telling me I have to live what way? I don't want to do that, but I trust you. I know that you are a good, good father. I know that you will work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I know that how will he who spared his own son not also give us everything in him? I know that you have given everything for me and that you love me and you have called me and adopted me as a son or a daughter. And that even though I don't wanna let go of this, I will trust you because I believe in you because I have faith. That's the kind of belief that John is concerned about here. And that's the kind of belief that John the Baptist is trying to spread, not just uh, uh, an intellectual assent to doctrine saying, hey, if you just check off all of these doctrinal points, then you will be good. He's saying, no, believe these things and let them create in you a trust in this God that you would just know about him, but that you would also know him. And the difference between those two things could not be further apart. The difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Right, it's kind of like me and uh, any celebrity you could fill in the blank. We'll just use the Jonas Brothers because for whatever reason, they were the first that popped in my head. Please don't judge me. Um, if I could list off any of the, of the facts about the Jonas Brothers, if I could tell you their birthdays, where they were born, their history, their past, I could tell you and research and study and know a lot about the Jonas Brothers. Not that I would want to and or have ever. But I could tell you and I could say, yes, I know a lot about them. But if they walked in through those doors, I wouldn't know them at all. They'd walk in and I would say, hey, you remember whenever you did this and this and this? And, and hey, well, I, I, let, I had a birthday party for, and, and decorated the whole things and we're playing your songs and I was doing everything. And how awesome is that? And they would probably look at me a little bit 
quizzically and say, okay, but who are you again? I don't know you. And friends, this is, in essence, my great fear for the American church, particularly the Southern American church, is that there will be people on that day whenever they go to meet their creator and they will say, look what all I did for you. I studied you. I I learned all of the original languages. I went and was was sharing about you and I, I studied this and led this Bible study. I was at church every single Sunday. I was leading Sunday school. Look at all that I did. And friends, there will be people that God will look at and say, but I never knew you. We know this because Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, there will be many on that day who will say, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Cast out many demons, prophesy and teach your word and do many great works. And he will look at them and say, depart from me for I never knew you. And this is my fear. And I think that the reason is, is that we haven't quite gotten over this distinction between knowing about God and knowing him, trusting him, believing in him, letting that relationship be the thing that shapes our lives, having our hands open saying, God, you are the Lord of every single aspect of my life. I am the possessor of none of it. I am but a steward and you are the possessor of it all. And so I give it all to you to do with as you please, writing to him a blessing blank check saying, God, this is on the table and you write whatever you will and I will follow you. Not just out of trying to earn any kind of salvation, trying to earn any kind of love or favor from him, but because we would know him, because we would trust in him. One of my favorite authors is a guy named J.I. Packer and he wrote a book called Knowing God probably the most influential book for me apart from the Bible that I've read. And he wrote this at the beginning of it. He said, we are perhaps orthodox evangelicals. We can state the gospel clearly. We can smell unsound doctrine a mile away. If asked how one may know God, we can produce at once the formula, the right formula. And we can, we, that we can come to know God through Jesus Christ the Lord in virtue of his cross and mediation on the basis of his word of promise by the power of the Holy Spirit via a personal experience of faith. Yet, the gaiety, goodness, and unfetteredness of spirit, which are the marks of those who have known God, are rare among us. Rarer, perhaps, than they are in some other Christian circles, where by comparison, evangelical truth is less clearly and fully known. Here, too, it would seem that the last may prove to be the first, and the first last. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. And friend, this is, this is really my hope for us as a church, for me and my own relationship with God, that I would not get consumed at all with any exegetical studies or reading through systematic theologies, but that my knowledge of him would lead to knowledge of him even further and further, deepening that relationship with him. That the greatest, the greatest distance in the Christian life is the one between the heart and the head. How do we get what we know about him into our hearts to begin to shape what we love, to begin to stir our affections for him? As we look to him, not as some God who is up there choosing everything that we 
have in our lives or seeing him as like some kid with a magnifying glass over in an anthill. We would see him as a father who loves us. That we would see him as a God who came to rescue us, even though we could never rescue ourselves. That he saw his creation helpless on a hellbound race, not being able to do anything to save themselves. And he said, no, I will save them from themselves. I will come and I will enter into the mess of this creation. I will become man. I will become my creation, fully God and fully man. And I will live the life that they could never live and I will die the death that they deserved, bearing on myself the weight and the wrath of sin so that they could be free, so that I could save them, because that they could be once rebels, that they could now be sons and daughters of the king, that this is what I will do to come and save them. If they would just turn and believe in me, then this life could be theirs and they could know me, they could trust me, they could have this type of faith. And friends, this type of relationship could be yours today. If you don't know him, you could know him today. You don't have to earn anything. You just come with open hands. An old hymn writer wrote, there's nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And if we come with that attitude, friends, that life, that relationship could be yours today. And who do we need to bring this light to, this belief to? John writes about it as well. He says that he hopes that all might believe. All might believe. Friends, this is our prayer as a church, that this belief, this faith, this relationship would not stay confined in these walls, but that it would go to everyone. Everyone in this city, everyone in this world, to all nations, that our desire would be that every single person we come in contact with could have this type of relationship, this type of light, this type of life, right? As we look at Hebrews 12, 15, our, our verse for the year, that we would see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. No one, that everyone, that all might believe through his name. That is our hope. That is our prayer. And lastly, to accomplish all this, we see that he was sent from God, that he, he came to bear witness about the light and that he did that so that all might believe. It's an important piece in that, seeing who John was and who he was not. Verse 8a, we see that he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. You see, in order to understand and accomplish the purpose that you've been sent from God to do, we need to understand who we are not. Right, so I think back to uh, a couple years ago in the NBA Finals, the Cleveland Cavaliers made it to the NBA Championship. And they had a couple of their players hurt, Kevin Love, Kyrie Irving, some of their superstars were hurt. And in steps this guy called Matthew Della Vadova. Now you can hear from his name that he's probably not your typical excellent basketball player. He was this guy from Australia who stepped in, who was usually a, a third string guy. And he was not good at basketball. But... He ended up playing a couple good games. He wasn't bad. But what was really important for him was that he understood, I, I can't carry this on my back. He's like a five foot 10 white guy from Australia with a scruffy beard almost all the way out. So he's, he realizes, hey, this is who I am. And he looks over and he's like, and that's LeBron James right next to me. And he's on my team. I need to understand that my role is to get the ball to him. 
I don't need to try to hog it and try to do everything I can. I need to understand, hey, I'm not the star on this team. And the best way for them to win is for me not to shoot and to get the ball to him so that he can shoot it. LeBron James is about six foot 10, 200, like 60 pounds, who knows, all muscle, just a specimen. I actually uh, worked in a, um, a restaurant a few years ago, right over here in Orlando, and LeBron actually came to our restaurant and I got to serve him lobster bisque. I came and dropped it off. He said, can I have some extra pepper? I said, of course you can, LeBron. <laughs> and I gave him some more. We had a moment, and now I'll forever be his pepper guy. <laughs> We've got a thing. But I just, I never, as I walked by him, even sitting down, he was just an intimidating presence, just this monster of a man who is unbelievably skilled. And Matthew Delvadova needed to understand his role on the team. He was not the star. And so he needed to get the ball to the star so they had a chance to win. Friends, it's honestly the same in our lives as we go to accomplish this great commission. We need to understand our role. We are not the light. We are not the star. We are not God's great gift to humanity. Friends, we are sinners. That's what we do. Everything that we touch, we mess up. And so we go constantly leaning on the power of the Spirit, saying, God, if I was doing this on my own, I would fail. But with you in me, God, there is no telling what you could do. My job is to get the ball to you so that you will accomplish your purpose. To understand our role, that we are responsible to be obedient and God is responsible for the results. We are responsible to be obedient, but God is responsible for the results. All right, we see this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 7. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters there is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so we understand then our job is to go, to scatter the seed as far as we can, to go to all the nations, to take this message as we are sent from God to bear witness about the light, to go so that all might believe, understanding that we are not the light, that we go to plant, we go to water, and then we go home to pray because God is the one who will give the growth. That is our role in this story. And so we see at the end of this then that actually the Christian faith is not private. It is not our own private affair. But we are actually called and sent from God to make it very public. It may be personal, but it is not private. Friends, we must go to talk about it. So this year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. In the year 1617, October 31st, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church in Wittenberg. And it began what would shape really the Western civilization. Well, there's another guy around that time named William Tyndale, who he was instrumental in getting the Bible translated into the common language of the English uh, country. His goal was to take the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and translate it into English that people could understand, to put something in their hands that the people could read themselves. Because at that point, every Catholic service was in uh, Latin, um, many of the Bibles people didn't have for themselves. So he was the first person to translate from the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, into English. And he wanted to get the Bible into the common man's hand. And I actually um, have a quote from him as he was wanting to do this. His goal, 
He says, I want to cause a boy who drives a plow to know more about the scriptures and the Pope. That was his hope because that was not available at this time. But friends, he was captured, arrested, and ended up being burned at the stake because of it. Because they saw this as some sort of treason against the Roman Catholic Empire and the English church itself. And as he was there about to be burned for what he had done, what he had said, and what he had done for all of us, he was there about to be burned and they asked him, one last chance, do you recant? Do you take back what you've done and said? And will you promise to go and just be quiet? Here is your last chance. And friends, his final words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And they strangled him and burned him at the stake. Friends, his faith was far from private. All he had to do was just pull back what he had said and live a private and quiet faith, like many of us often do here. But he could not, because he had been sent from God to bear witness about the Christ that he knew so that all might believe through him knowing that he was not the light that could save them, but instead pointing them to that light. And he died because of it. May God grant us the courage here to live with that same kind of faith. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word and your truth. God, help us as a church to see that you have sent us to bring you glory through the spreading of your gospel. God, help us to boldly and winsomely share our faith with the people that you've placed around us, realizing that we do not have to produce any of the results on our own, but we're simply called to be faithful, and you are the one who brings the growth. Give us each a desire to see everyone in this city obtain the grace of God and come to know and trust and believe in you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.